In terms of the field of cultural heritage science, it started the major laboratories, which were in Berlin and London, started in the 19th century. And so it's been well over 100 years that people have been using scientific methods to understand and preserve cultural heritage. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was cultural heritage scientist Dr. Jennifer Mass. In addition to giving a bit of history on the field of cultural heritage science and conservation, Dr. Mass also tells what prompted her to found Scientific Analysis of Fine Art, known as SAFA, a company which provides authentication, attribution, and state of preservation information for works of art. She also shares her experience heading the Scientific Vetting Committee for TAFOF New York and creating a pool of forensic science experts for the Court of Arbitration for Art, and how the use of science in these venues indicates a turn towards a multifaceted approach to due diligence. There is a glimpse into which colors Dr. Mass would include on a Dirty Dozen list and her current work with the Medigliani Collection at the Barnes Foundation. When asked which artworks that are believed to be lost or destroyed that she would most like to work on if they were to reappear, the answer is resoundingly Klimt's University of Vienna ceiling paintings, known as the faculty paintings. And we close with Dr. Mass giving her view on how she sees her work including her teaching at the Bard Graduate Center, facilitating justice from social and environmental perspectives and leaving a legacy of scientific literacy for art conservators and art historians. Dr. Jennifer Mass, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Stephanie. It's delightful to be here. Would you give an overview of what's involved in cultural heritage science? So the field of cultural heritage science really started in the 19th century with the Friedrich Rothgen starting a laboratory for chemical analysis of cultural objects in Berlin. And in those very early days of uh, the field, we were really doing wet chemical analysis. We don't have the instrumental analysis that we have today, where um, fairly large samples would have to be removed from objects of art. And as we go into the 20th century and the 21st century, all of these new types of Molecular identification techniques are invented like infrared spectroscopy and Raman spectroscopy that are real workhorses for the field. And even some of the um, technologies that are on the Mars rover, for example, like X-ray fluorescence, so which is an elemental analysis technique that's totally non-destructive. And so it's great for objects of art. And so what we wind up doing in this field is we pull innovations from all other types of fields like astronomy and the work that's being done by NASA and um, the biomedical field. And we find non-destructive elemental and molecular and microscopic techniques that we can then turn around and apply to objects of art. And so we're constantly not only learning more about 
cultural heritage, but also developing new technologies to study cultural heritage in the most effective way possible. You have established your own firm, SAFA. Would you give an overview of how you decided that that was needed in the field and and what the work of SAFA is? I would say in the past uh, 10 to 15 years, there's been a real revolution in the scientific instrumentation that's uh, available to study works of art. And the major research museums have really benefited from this revolution, this new scientific technology. And so I started SAPA as a way to really make these innovations more accessible to address these questions about cultural heritage. With that in mind, it seems SAPA has a wide range of clients from smaller museums and auction houses to individual collectors or artists. Absolutely. Um, Smaller museums tend not to have scientific laboratories because the um, equipment is quite expensive. And so whether it's an artist foundation or a house or a collector or, or a dealer, we like to be able to provide this type of expertise. And there's a real um, payback for us as well in terms of the diversity of artworks that we get to work on every day. It's a completely different artist and a completely different problem. And we just love that. And that brings me to a painting that we thought was long since destroyed, Yves Tanguy's uh, Fraud in the Garden. How did you come to work on that piece? I got involved in this project because I had previously worked with these two uh, amazing art historians, Charles Stuckey and Stephen Mack, who were working on the catalog Raisonate for Yves Tanguy. And they had gotten a call from an auction house saying that one of Yves Tanguy's paintings that was thought to have been destroyed during the Lage d'Or incident, which was a fascist and anti-Semitic attack on a group of surrealist artworks and uh, surrealist movie actually in Paris in uh, 1930. And it's thought that many works by Man Ray and Tanguy and Salvador Dali had been destroyed during this attack. And uh, then this work shows up at the auction house and it's in perfect condition. And so we thought, you know, can this be the real painting from the attack or is it a later copy? And so they invited me to come over to the auction house and have a look at it. And that started really our scientific study of uh, the work using um, what we call in the field uh, multispectral imaging. So studying it with ultraviolet light and infrared radiation and uh, x-rays. And we were ultimately able to find out through the x-rays that this painting that looked like it was absolutely in perfect condition, in fact, did have the same pattern of slashes that we could see in the black and white photographs of the wreckage of the Lodge Door incident. And so it was a matter of such a skillful restoration had been done to this painting. Actually, multiple restorations had been done to this painting that it was almost impossible initially to see that it was the real thing. And how did you determine, was it the owner? Uh, did he divulge that it was multiple restorations or did, were you able to tell that through your analysis? 
The owner told us that it had been restored, but then the more that we studied the chemistry of all of the different pigments on the painting, we can tell that there was a restoration from the first half of the 20th century. So it would have been probably soon after the incident occurred. And then we saw something that had been done um, probably after 1970 or so. And so from the pigments and um, paint binders, we find we can date not only the original, but we can get a sense of the date of when the piece has been worked on. Have you seen restorations like that where it is so seamless that it's very difficult to tell when it's been damaged that greatly? Absolutely. Art conservators are amazingly talented people in terms of having these incredible artistic and hand skills, but then also the scientific background that uh, I work to give all of my students as well. And so, yes, um, sometimes it's when you look at a work, it's impossible to see um, where the restorations actually are. I had seen in one of the articles where you were quoted and you were discussing this idea of the the artworks like Fraud in the Garden being um, kept intact, the idea of keeping them intact to act as a historical document versus restoring them. And I, I was curious if you could expand a bit on how you see that. I see tremendous value in having works of uh, cultural heritage show the scars of war and not just papering over their history with a complete conservation. And one wonderful example of this is the Victoria and Albert Museum, which I absolutely love and which is a magnificent facade, but still you can see all of the bomb damage the blitz on the facade and the strafing of the bullets by the Nazis. And I don't think that takes away from the beauty of the building. I think in a way it makes it even more significant when you realize what the building and the collection went through to survive to the current day. And a painting is different than a building facade. And there's real art historical implications in terms of leaving a painting unrestored. And so maybe one could split the difference and have the painting be beautifully conserved so Yves Tanguy's work can shine through, but then also display it with the x-ray so that the important history of the fascist attack can also be revealed. Yeah, and I've seen where, uh, like pieces by Mark Rothko, I believe, where they did 3D imaging on top of the piece, like different creative ways to achieve that. Absolutely. My conservation colleagues have come up with some phenomenally innovative ways of uh, dealing with changes, the objects of art and the Rothko murals at Harvard are a great example of this, where they're actually projecting the colors of these very badly faded paintings back onto the paintings so that people can experience Rothko's original vision, but without changing the works or painting over any of Rothko's original works. So we have lots of um, different options in terms of showing the artist's intent but not changing the original work of art. Going to the fraud in the garden analysis, I was curious for other types of objects, the decisions that go into 
how you will analyze for an attribution question. What do you decide for the techniques and how is that determined? That's a great question. And we do have different protocols that we use if we're working on an ancient Roman bronze. We'll want to start, for example, with the patina and see if the patina is original or um, a lot of times they were removed and then restored in the early 20th century. And so there's certain types of molecular analysis that we'll go to to identify all of the different um, copper carbonates and copper chlorides that can make up a patina. But if we were working on a Renaissance marble, then we have a whole other set of tools that we would use, for example, to look at what quarries the different marble components came from using isotopic analysis. And so I would say, depending upon whether it is an antiquity or a painting or um, a decorative art object, uh, we have protocols that have been pretty well established over the past, you know, 140 years or so that scientists have been studying objects of art. And as new scientific technologies are invented, we update our protocols. And the drive with our protocols is always to be non-destructive, to not take a sample from an object of art if we can avoid it. And if we do have to take a sample, then they're tiny. Um, If you picture the period at the end of a Times New Roman 10-point sentence, I could take that tiny sample and do maybe six different types of elemental and molecular analyses on them. That's how sophisticated and powerful the tools have become. How has your analysis differed from artists like Matisse to Picasso or Cezanne? In uh, the case of Matisse, I think Many people are familiar with the changes that uh, Van Gogh's works have gone through over time. And the Met had an exhibit about this a few years ago called Irises and Roses, where they showed how the paintings look today versus how they would have looked when Van Gogh first painted them. Because he loved this particular pigment called Geranium Lake um, that's scientifically known as Eosin Red. And it's gorgeous. It's this beautiful, bright pink color, but it only lasts for a few years or sometimes even a few months. And so people are very familiar with textile dyes being fugitive, fading over time, and they're familiar with the Van Gogh problems with ES and Red. But it's not until recently that we understood that some of the pigments that were invented during the Industrial Revolution, like the cadmium yellows and the the chromium yellows are also very light sensitive and sensitive even to the relative humidity, the water that's in the the air. And so we first started working on Matisse's joy of life because Matisse actually did four different versions of this painting, just like Edvard Munch did four different versions of the scream and that the colors were changing in some of the versions in particular, the yellows were fading away to an ivory white color. And so we started getting really deep into the chemistry of these pigments to understand the mechanism of degradation, because it's only once you understand the mechanism of degradation, then you can identify the right display conditions for the painting so that people can continue to enjoy the painting 
but you can have that balance between preservation of the work and access of the work. And so just like we do with textiles and museums, it can be a matter of having the right light levels and the right relative humidity in the galleries in order to stabilize these paintings that are um, just icons of the, the early 20th century and Western cultural heritage and helping them survive into the future. And so that's what we were doing for Matisse. In the case of Picasso, we had um, something that was common for him in his blue period and is on display at the Phillips collection now, which is his 1901 painting, The Blue Room, where he's uh, leaving behind, um, he's 19 years old when he does this painting. And so he's just come from uh, Barcelona to Paris. And when he first gets to Paris, he's really entranced by the nightlife and he's doing doing all of these scenes of um, dancers and of uh, cafes, kind of similar to Toulouse-Lautrec. And then the blue period becomes very introspective. And as he's making that transition, he reuses his canvases. And so we had this wonderful um, portrait that was underneath this very somber scene of the interior of his studio. And we're able to use a number of different imaging technologies to pull out that original painting without um, changing the surface painting in any way. And then in the case of Cezanne, we were looking at his um, palette and working methods in general. So um, doing what's called technical art history in terms of learning about the artist's materials and technique, but then also noticing that some of the green pigments that he were was using, um, some of them were becoming more translucent over time, almost like green stained glass, and us, others of them were becoming more opaque. And so we were looking at the chemistry behind these changes, and um, they're not visible to the naked eye. They're very subtle. And that's when you want to get involved and find out what the mechanism of change is, again, so that these paintings can continue to show Cezanne's original vision. I had heard you giving a lecture a few years back, I believe, and you had referenced that there were tubes of paint from Monk's studio that you were doing analysis of. I was curious if that was still going on or what uh, that what it was involved with that. Yes, that is um, still going on. There's over 900 tubes in the collection. The Monk Museum is so, so fortunate that the artist's materials were actually preserved. And so a team of scientists has been systematically going through the different tubes. And if you go to the art supply store and buy a tube of paint, then you've got not just the pigment, but also the binder and the fillers and other additives that the paint manufacturer will have put in. And so through all those additives, so we're working on assigning the different paints that Munk used to different objects of art. And um, one good example of that is Windsor & Newton, probably a brand of oil paint that we've all heard of. And they use a specific type of filler, a magnesium carbonate. And so when we look at Munk's paintings, we can identify where he was using Windsor & Newton versus where he was using other manufacturers. Is it true that it was around the 1920s that paints became a bit more stable? If that's true, what, what occurred around that time? Absolutely. 
I would say what happens in the 1920s is that things become a little bit more standardized. And so it used to be that if you were, you know, Van Gogh or Cezanne, you could go to the um, what we would call the art supply store now. But at that time, they would have called the colorman. And there would have been maybe seven different shades of chrome yellow or cadmium yellow available to you. But the way that the pigments were manufactured, um, the lighter shades could be very unstable. And by the 1920s, they were realizing how to solve this problem, basically how to fully crystallize the pigments to make them as resistant to environmental attack as possible. And so a lot of the problems that we're seeing in the works of the Impressionists through the Expressionists we don't see them anymore once you get into, for example, the abstract expressionists. And they have, in the middle of the 20th century, a whole other set of chemical issues, mostly involving the use of zinc white, but the earlier issues get solved. Is there an, also an issue with the titanium white that they used, or was it uh, just the zinc white? Uh, there can be. It's not as um, catastrophic as the zinc white can sometimes be. When the zinc oxide in zinc white reacts with oil paint, you can wind up uh, with um, what's called zinc soaps, a type of molecule that crystallizes and then can cause the painting to flake. And the flakes will literally be the size of potato chips, like really large flakes. And so this is a scary phenomenon. With titanium white, mostly what we see is that the titanium white that was used in the early decades of the 20th century, it can start to darken over time. And what I've noticed in the work of the surrealists and some of the um, expressionists is that you'll see that the white backgrounds have been overpainted on these works, something that um, a conservator wouldn't do today. But we think this was happening because the titanium white was starting to look a little bit brown, not as fresh as it was originally. And when you have large fields of uh, color like you do in um, um, a surrealist painting, then that can really throw off the balance of the painting. And so I think these early restorers in the first half of the 20th century were painting over these backgrounds. And so it's definitely something to look out for, for paintings of this period. Is it true that when you're doing the x-ray of a painting, if it has that white background, does that uh, make it more difficult to do pigment analysis of it? I, I'd heard you talking about like the high atomic number versus low atomic number of uh, paints. And so I, I was curious and, and uh, about all of that, but then I'd heard you talk about the white background. Um, I see what you're saying. And mostly poorly worded question, perhaps. I apologize. <laughs> no, no, it's a great question. Um, so mostly the problems that we run into if we have a painting buried beneath another painting, and it's thought that somewhere between 5 and 10% of paintings have another painting underneath them. If the artist is using heavy metal pigments that absorb x-rays very strongly, like lead white or um, vermilion, which is a mercury sulfide red or barium white, then that's going to really prevent us from seeing the painting underneath with our x-ray methods. They're going to um, absorb the x-rays so strongly that they don't even make it through to the buried painting. 
But sometimes we can flip the painting around and analyze it from the back instead of the front. And so have the x-rays um, penetrate through the ground layer straight into the first um, painting and uh, get information about the original painting on the canvas in that way. This type of analysis that you were doing on the Tangi painting, is that I'd heard or read that it was um, being put into a report that was being done with the Met? Is that is that right? And will it be available to the public? Yes, it will be. Yes. In fact, we were able to study several different works by Yves Tanguy when he was work- working in Europe. And then when he came to the United States during World War II, and that publication is uh, coming out in a Springer volume that's been edited by some of my Italian colleagues. And so it will be uh, available to everyone. Shifting to the work that you've been doing with TAFOF New York, would you describe your experience there? Absolutely. I would say, but let me back up for a moment and say that I'm the head of the scientific vetting committee for TAFOF New York. And it is so much fun. We have so much art that we have to go through in a very short period of time because the shows at the Armory turn over very quickly. And so it's a couple of really late nights to get everything examined. And so we work with the art historians and they'll pull objects for us to analyze that they have questions about, or will the scientists will go through and the conservators will go through the show ourselves and pick out objects that we have questions about. And what we're interested in is um, making sure that the objects for sale are of the right quality for the fair. And so if there is conservation or restoration history to the object, then we want that to be fully disclosed. And we want to make sure, of course, that the object is what it purports to be. And of course, we know there there is quite a problem in the antiquities market with fakes and uh, forgeries. And so we do a lot of elemental and molecular analysis and imaging to make sure that everything is what it's supposed to be. And I mean, certainly we have run into things that we've, that have been maybe more extensively restored than the label says, or a pastiche, an object that's been cobbled together from several other objects. And then we'll work with the dealers to decide, do do we have to just change the labeling here so that the buyer knows, or is it something that's not really appropriate for the fair? And oftentimes, I would say antiquities sometimes because a lot of them were excavated in the late 18th century and the the early 19th century, they've gone through an awful lot of changes. And so sometimes we can see objects that truly are ancient, but the entire surface, it turns out to be modern. And in that case, that's something that we would pull from the fair and ask that the dealer go back to a conservation studio and have it conserved more in line with the conservation ethics of today. You're also involved with the Court of Arbitration for Art? Yes. I have been uh, working with Sharon Hecker and uh, Lynn Rother on helping to put together a group of, uh, in my case, forensic science experts that can be available to the court. And uh, then Sharon and 
Lynn have been working on a group of provenance experts and art historical experts. And the idea is that litigation is a long and expensive process and that if we can have people that have a tremendous amount of expertise already in art and the art market, then maybe that's a better way to go than to have something go to litigation where the judge may or may not have any background in art law or art history. And so is trying to um, really judge expert testimony in a field that's not their area of expertise. And so I find the whole project really exciting. And it's been fun to work with my colleagues to get together a group of scientists who are willing to participate in this. The embracing of science in that venue of the Court of Arbitration for Art, as well as TAFOF New York. Uh, How do you see that as a rising tide of trusting science to do the due diligence to avoid things like the Nodler Gallery story? Great question. Uh, I think historically, the art market has been um, a lot of deals are done on a handshake and not really papered over properly. And Oftentimes, logistically, it's just very hard to do due diligence before the sale if you're at an art fair, for example, and there's a lot of competition over the best works. And so I think there's pressure on buyers to make a rapid decision without their due diligence. And I think if the contract is written appropriately between the buyer and seller, and it's understood that um, scientific due diligence can be done either before the purchase or after the purchase, then the market can really work far more effectively and we can avoid the type of problems that we see with the Nodler Gallery where there was large-scale fraud going on and there was this idea that um, only art historians needed to review these works and weigh in on these works. And traditionally, that has been the way and I would never um, try to make a judgment of a work of art without collaborating with conservators and art historians. I think making a decision about an object is really a multidisciplinary process and bringing science into the mix. Sometimes we can very rapidly answer questions that might take provenance researchers or art historians months or even years. And so I see this as a really good addition to the process. Would you say that there had been perhaps a stigma associated with using science in the past, not relying solely on connoisseurship? Absolutely. I think there's some fascinating social interactions that go on between, or that can go on between the buyer and the seller, where you're almost discouraged from doing your due diligence. And it's like, well, if you're a sophisticated collector, then you know that you can trust me and my gallery and not have to have any scientific work done. And it's almost um, considered to be nouveau riche or um, inappropriate to ask for the type of scientific due diligence that um, people now more routinely do. And even the auction houses are realizing it is something that can really help them in avoiding mistakes. And so there has been resistance in the in the field. And I think in general, there's been resistance in bringing transparency to the art market. And science is one of the ways that transparency does come to the art market. And I think that um, if we look at 
the newer generations of collectors like the millennials, they are more comfortable with science and they're more comfortable with the idea that you wouldn't purchase a large asset like a house or a boat without doing your due diligence. And so why would you purchase an artwork in that way? As far as uh, increasing the market education about this, do you see that trend improving? That's a great question and something that I work very hard on whether it comes to doing lectures for appraisers organizations or art law organizations or family offices. I really am trying to get the word out about what is available for collectors of art and for sellers of art in terms of understanding their collections better. And sometimes people will approach us just saying that they're thinking about their legacy and having their collection be dispersed to museums and to um, and to their errors and just wanting to check things out before they do that. And so it does seem like slowly but steadily, there is a trend that people are learning that this is an option for them in terms of the transactions that they make in the art market. Your work at the Bard Graduate Center is bolstering that as well, I would imagine. Absolutely. I'm trying to have a whole generation of art historians um, get excited about science and realize everything that the scientific study of cultural heritage can tell them, whether it relates to um, something as um, expected as uh, authenticity or even the ways that we can study provenance and uh, mechanism of uh, degradation using science. And so absolutely the favorite my favorite part of teaching is watching how excited the students get about science, which is often um, a field that they thought they were not at all interested in. But when they see how it applies to the works of art that they're studying, then they just, they just love it. And so that's really gratifying. For different objects, we've kind of gone through that, but uh, for say paintings versus a sculpture and then within that sculptures made of different materials, say wood, like, would you look at a wooden sculpture that's been painted and say, these are the types of techniques that we need to use for that piece? How does that work? Absolutely. If you're looking at a wooden polychrome sculpture, some of the things that you might think about um, in terms of the wooden interior would be things like dendrochronology or tree ring dating or radiocarbon dating to understand the date of the work. And um, oftentimes you see a large amount of restoration done to these works because I think we're all familiar with like how much wood expands and contracts with changes in relative humidity. Even, you know, trying to open a wooden door in the summer can be hard because especially on the East coast, because the humidity is so high that the doors do swell and the same thing happens with the, um, these painted sculptures, and it can cause the paint to start flaking off. And so we'll take um, tiny samples of the paint. And just like if you slice into a cake, you reveal the layers in the cake. Those tiny samples, when we look at them under the microscope, we can see the full um, layer structure and uh, of the paint, and thus the paint history, and often find out that an object has a completely different color palette now than it would have had originally. And so we can then think about 
if it's possible to remove any of those earlier restorations that may not have been sympathetic to the original work or whether the history of change is also important because it might represent the history of a region or of a specific church where the object comes from. For all of the paint analysis, would you say that all paints have some kind of vice to them and some have more inherent vice than others? Or how do you look at that? Oh, wonderful question. I mean, certainly I could come up with a list of, you know, the dirty dozen in terms of (laughs) paints that have been used in the 19th and 20th century that we now know were a very bad idea and that we're having to deal with now in terms of a lot of, um, I would say, metal soaps that can rise to the surface of uh, the paint or the development of free fatty acids that can um, cause kind of a whitish haze or bloom over the surface of a paint or even um, some artists in the middle of the 20th century were experimenting with mixing drying oil paints like linseed oil with non-drying oil paints like sunflower oil. And some of those paints, paintings still haven't dried. They're still changing and dripping today. And so, yeah, there's a lot of things from our vantage point today, looking back that we wish that artists would have done differently. And there still are a lot of fugitive pigments being used today, pigments that um, are unfortunately very light sensitive and are not going to last very long. And so we try to work with the contemporary artists in terms of choosing their materials, whether it's or a a patina chemical or a pigment to help them choose the the materials that are gonna be as stable as possible. But I'm certain there are things that we're using today that a hundred years from now, people will be looking back at us and saying, my God, why did they choose those materials? For the Dirty Dozen, would that start with the cad yellow? <laughs> Probably Eosin Red would be first on the list, and then Emerald Green, and then Cadmium Yellow, and uh, Chromium Yellow. Even something like uh, Vermilion Red um, can change over time. It can turn white or black. Um, the Copper Blues, like Azurite. Um, the reason that Ultramarine Blue is used for the Virgin Mary's robe is because Azurite Blue, the copper, can um, react with like sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere and turn brown over time. And so it's not just the um, modern pigments, even ancient and historic pigments can change in some really dramatic ways over time. What would you say is your most favorite piece that you've ever worked on and why is that? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you want me to have <laughs> you want me to have favorites. If you if you can narrow it down, or maybe if you... <laughs> Okay, I'm definitely a big fan of uh, the German expressionists and uh, it um but then also Edvard Munch too and Van Gogh too. So I would say I've never worked on an expressionist painting that I haven't liked. And right now I'm working on the Modigliani collection at the Barnes Foundation. And those works, every moment with them is a revelation in terms of, they can appear to be not very complicated in terms of his palette, but the more we study them, 
the more we find that his palette is incredibly sophisticated and complex. And so it's it's that type of discovery that really keeps me going, I would say. Can you give a glimpse into the palette findings? Sure, sure. Um, emerald green, this absolutely magnificent um, acidy green that was very um, favored by artists like uh, Van Gogh and uh, Cezanne. It turns out Modigliani was also using it, but in a very different way. He was mixing it oftentimes with his blacks. And so he's giving depth to his blacks by adding all these other pigments. But when you see it, it really, it hits you on a subliminal level. You you think that you're looking at just a really rich, deep black, but in fact, there's all these blues and greens that are used to enhance that color. And where will those uh, findings and and the work that you're doing, will that be kept uh, with the foundation or will that be shared Great question. Um, some of this has already been published in the Burlington Magazine and uh, our early studies. And then we're also working on a book for uh, ex- for an exhibit on uh, Modigliani's um, sculptures and paintings that's coming up at the Barnes Foundation. And so the Cezanne at the Barnes, that volume just came out and Modigliani at the Barnes is going to be the next volume that's coming out. Like the Tongi, are there one or two pieces you would hope would appear one day and you might be able to work on? Absolutely. And Gustav Klimt is what comes to mind here. And when I think about his faculty paintings that were created for University of Vienna and destroyed during the Second World War, and now all we have is some of the drawings, um, they're just magnificent. And it's a tragic loss to uh, cultural heritage that we don't have these paintings anymore. But I know that there's been a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning studies of Klimt's work in an attempt to understand what those paintings would have looked like originally. And so I think just last year, there was a publication that uh, worked on studying how Klimt used color in all of his paintings that survived and applying that idea of what these missing paintings would have looked like. But if any of them were discovered, well, I would love that opportunity to work on one of those. And it's just occurring to me, that kind of analysis uh, is sort of, would you say, counteracts the survivor bias that works against paintings that have gone missing over history? uh, When you do that kind of um, using materials that we have to to remind people that these pieces are out there or they were out there at some point. Absolutely. And it's often the case that we do have a black and white photograph of a painting that was destroyed in the Second World War. And now that we are starting to um, be able to use these computational technologies to get at what the original color of these artworks were, we have the possibility of bringing some of them back to life, which is quite exciting. How would you uh, describe your work uh, as facilitating justice for either the artists whose work that you've been dealing with or the works themselves or the market in general? How do you see that? That's a great question. And this is something that I think about a lot with the the courses that I teach. And so, for example, last fall, my students and I looked at the 
innovations for artists' materials and technologies in the 19th century and the social justice and environmental justice issues that grew up as a result of them. A great example invention of photography, and that enabled Jacob Reese to go into the slums of uh, New York and show how immigrants were living, and uh, that was the beginning of people's understanding of uh, the need for immigrant aid. And likewise with Lewis Hine and child labor, he was able to use photography to really show people this is what's happening in the factories. Is this acceptable to you to have a five-year-old working in a textile mill or in a coal mine? And then we go from those examples to Black Lives Matter and thinking without cell phone cameras, could the Black Lives Matter movement even have happened? And so we have the social justice issues and then also the environmental justice issues, because when we look at the artist pigments that were created in the 19th century, they were made using materials like arsenic and cadmium and lead that are incredibly toxic. And we can look at how the workers were affected in that period and then move into the 20th, the 20th and 21st century and look at the legacy of uh, lead paint in cities like Baltimore, for example, and what we still need to do to deal with uh, some of these toxic materials that have been introduced into the environment. But also looking at um, workers uh, attempting to organize as a result of the conditions, their labor conditions in the end of the 19th century and the labor movement that time and the burgeoning labor movement that's happening now. And so there's so many ways that the past can help inform the future from both the social and environmental justice perspectives. Would you have any recommendations for anyone who has been stirred by what you're saying and, and wants to perhaps consider being a part of the field or has already started trying to, but wants to go further. Do you have any suggestions? I would say 100% go for it. It will be the adventure of a lifetime to be able to travel all over the world and study all of these different types of art. And to, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is that these objects of art are incredibly beautiful, not only when we see them in the museum gallery, but at a microscopic level too. So we have this intimacy with the artwork and the artist in a way that I think is hard to get in any other field. But I would also say that it's a very small field and there's maybe somewhere between 140 and 200 people in the United States who, who do the type of work that I do. And so you can't be very choosy about what city you want to live in. You have to kind of move to where the jobs come up. And so there are some sacrifices along the way. But more rewards, sounds like. Definitely. Far more rewards. What would you say is the legacy that you hope to be creating with the work that you're doing? I'd like to create scientific uh, literacy for art conservators and art historians, be effective collaborators in the museum environment and in the art market environment. And so the art historian will know enough scientific language that they know when it's a good idea to call in a scientist to collaborate with. And 
I feel like the most interesting work is always done at the boundaries of disciplines and interdisciplinary research in general is the most powerful way to understand an object. And so I really see that combination of the art historian and the scientist and the art conservator as the best way to understand an object of art. And to the extent that my teaching can facilitate that, that is something that um, I would really like to leave behind. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more about Dr. Mass and Safa. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this or any of the other podcast episodes, please leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast. You can also email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com or leave a voice message at 1-929-260-4942. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.